Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Amy Christine Parker, author of the new novel, Flight 171. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Flight 171, how would you describe the novel? Um, It's a young adult horror thriller. Uh, and it's about a girl who is um, trying to get over her twin sister's death. She was murdered in a hit and run, and they haven't caught the the murderer yet. But she's trying to move on with her life. So she has signed up for the senior class ski trip and is about to board uh, Flight 171 towards Denver uh, for that trip. Um, but once she gets on the plane with her, the rest of her uh, classmates, there is a very strange elderly woman on the plane, um, sort of creepy, that gives her unsettling vibes. And once the plane takes off, this woman um, attacks one of the flight attendants and then puts the entire rest of the plane to sleep except for this this group of children. And basically, she reveals herself to be this ancient supernatural creature who is an immortal being in trapped inside a mortal body. And she, in order to keep living, she's got to find a new body to possess. So she tells the kids that one of them needs to become her new body, but it's up to them to choose who it will be. And they have the remainder of the flight to do that, or she will crash the plane and everyone will perish. So um, the kids have to make this decision. And in order to sort of encourage them to do that over the in-flight entertainment center, uh, system, she has them um, watch footage of each of their darkest secrets. Uh, so they they sort of decide who they think will be the best sacrifice based on which kid seems to be the most twisted. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Flight 171? Uh, actually, um, very much like uh, two other underlined authors, I'm part of uh, Random House Underlined, um, Victoria and Faith wrote Horror Hotel. And um, they have a similar story to mine in that Wendy Logia had put out a, a tweet asking for um, story pitches for her underlined line of books that are romance and uh, horror thriller. And when she put that tweet out, uh, I wanted to try out. And the book I had been working on was a little too similar to another book in that line. And so I thought, I've got to come up with a new concept. <laughs> so um, what could I do? And I've always been a huge Stephen King fan. And for whatever reason, Storm of the Century, one of his uh, miniseries, popped into my head. It's something I've always kind of liked. And that was sort of similar in the vein that there was this creature that was asking this town to offer up one of its own as a sacrifice. And that story stuck with me as a kid. I was really upset by it when I watched it on TV. I thought it was kind of unsettling and scary. And so um, I guess I was thinking about that at the time that I was trying to think about what I could write. And I thought, what would that be like if you were, instead of adults trying to make this decision, what if you were teenagers? And, and how do you decide who to choose for a sacrifice? Like, what are the parameters you would use? And, and how would that be different if you were a teenager as opposed to an adult? And so that was kind of the impetus for it. And then uh, I've always had sort of a fear of flying, not necessarily being up in the air, but the takeoff and the landing. And so when I saw Flight, uh, I mean, uh, Final Destination, the movie, um, that was another thing that stuck with me. So every time <laughs> I got the plane after that, I would always think of that opening sequence where um, it shows a plane crashing like as it's taking off. Uh, it kind of blows up in the air. And so I had these two things and I sort of married them together. And that's sort of how Flight 171 came about. That's great. Well, as you mentioned, it is a young adult novel. What yes. appeal? What appeals to you about writing for young adults? Uh, you know, I think I like writing for young adults because I was a teacher once upon a time, and so uh, I always liked 
talking to younger kids sort of about their experiences because they're fresh. They're having them for the first time. Life sort of is wide open and you really don't know much about who you are yet and who you're going to become and what your life is going to look like. And um, there's something sort of inherently conflicted about that. Like there's a lot of tension in that decision-making process, you know, trying to figure out what direction your life is going to take and who you actually are and what your your own morality and principles and ethics will be. And so I think I always kind of revisit that time period, that coming of age time when you're trying to figure out like, what do you think is right and wrong? And um, what are you willing to do to stand up for your principles? Uh, and what that looks like when you're trying to do that for the first time. So um, it's something that I don't ever really tire of sort of investigating. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, I'm curious, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing your first stories and getting your first novel published? I call my writing career my midlife crisis. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, I had been a teacher once upon a time, and then I had children and I stayed home for a period of time with them while they were young. And about that time, um, I had listened to Dora the Explorer and some of these TV shows um, over and over and over with my kids. And we were playing and doing all the things that you do with small children. And it was wonderful, but it was also extremely routine. Mm -hmm. And it took up most of my life. And I think somewhere along the way, I started to wake up and realize like, I really don't know who I am anymore. I'm a mom, but who else am I? And um, when they were starting to get close to school age, I thought, I'm going to have to kind of refigure that out. It's about time for me to go back to work. And when I started to consider the idea of going back to work as a teacher, I thought, I've been with kids for a long time. I'm not sure I want to go back. So <laughs> if I don't, what would that look like? And I thought, what would I do if I weren't going to teach? What would I do? And I think that's the first time in my life that I had sort of the opportunity and time to sort of ask myself if I could do anything, like nothing was off the table because I didn't have a job or a, a set path at that moment. What would I do? And I had always been a huge reader um, and loved books and stories. And I think like it just popped into my head. That's what I would do. I would tell stories. If I could do anything, I would do that because that's the thing in my life that I love the most is reading and sort of getting lost in these other worlds. I mean, even as a kid, I like to play pretend to a, to a, a, a really extreme degree. So I think that that sort of came back to me in that moment. And literally at that point, I had zero training. I didn't know the first thing about writing. I hadn't written since college. And I literally Googled, how do you write a novel? And that's how it started. <laughs> and, and, and how was it for you from that, from that moment when you, when you Googled, um, what was your process from there to, to, um, I'm assuming you got an agent at some point. So can you tell us a little bit? I did. Um, I would say that the second I decided that I wanted to be a writer, it was almost as if I ignited a fire inside myself. I was completely obsessed with the idea. I don't know why that was the way it was, but it was almost as if I had finally discovered who I was meant to be. And I couldn't wait to get there. So I talked to my husband about it and I was supposed to go back to work. And I said, you know, I'd really like to give this a try. So, um, we decided that I would take two years to sort of try to write some novels and see if I could get an agent and find a publisher and get published. So um, I had this two-year sort of timeline, which is not a lot of time. Anybody who's a writer knows it takes a long time to get good at it. So I was sort of on this fast track. And so um, every free moment I had, I was working on trying to write. And I wrote a really horrible novel first, um, but I joined writers groups. I joined a poetry group. Um, that was run by some local professors in my area and uh, used that sort of as a jumping off point because there wasn't really a novel writing group in my mm -hmm. area. And then from there, I actually pulled people from that group into a novel writing group and we sort <laughs> of started our own. 
Uh, and I sort of taught myself for that time period. So I wrote this horrible novel. And while I was doing that, an agent just happened to come to our writing group. She knew someone who was in the group and she came and visited. And um, we sort of connected, but I didn't have a finished novel. And um, she's the first agent I'd ever met. But I thought I can learn a lot from this person. And she was a, a really great, interesting person. My, my agent is Lucienne Diver from the Night Agency. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, you know, anything I can do to learn about publishing through her, I'm going to try to do so. However I can help her, that's going to help me. So I offered to be a, a, a critique reader for her because she's also a writer. And um, for a couple of years, we sort of corresponded back and forth, met once in a while for coffee, and I would read her work and sort of weigh in on it for her as a reader. And then we would talk about writing. And so I learned a lot in that time period. And uh, she took a look at my first novel and Unfortunately, it was not sellable, and she let me know that, but she asked if I had anything else that I was working on, and at the time, I had just had this idea about a girl who was growing up in an apocalyptic cult uh, that was preparing to seal themselves underground for the end of the world, and what it might be like as a teenager if you were having doubts about the apocalypse. Uh, what were you, What would you do? So I pitched that idea to her, and she said, okay, I love that. Go write that, and when you get done, I'd like to consider it. So I took... Um, seven months. And by now I was closing in on the, the end of my two year, you know, sort of timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just under the wire sent it to her like about at the end of that two years. And uh, it was around Christmas time. And it took her about a month, I would say, to get to my submission. And then uh, once she did, she read it in less than 48 hours. She offered me representation um, in a weekend and I hadn't given it to anyone else. But I knew enough about her at this time. Sure. Um, and, and she had invested time in me for no really good. Like it wasn't to her benefit at all at that time. You know, she didn't know whether or not I would be a viable client. She just did it out of kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but all that interest and time she'd given me, I knew she was going to be an excellent agent. So it was a no-brainer. And so I have a very unusual story in that I literally only queried like one person. <laughs> wow. That was a <laughs> great connection. <laughs> so I queried her. She uh I accepted her her um offer of representation and within a month she had it out on sub to a bunch of editors. And then we had a lot of interest. So the book went to auction. And then after that, I think it was a couple of weeks and it sold and it sold to my dream house, which was Random House. And um, Gated came out in 2013. So I made it just under the two year <laughs> year mark <laughs> to get that. But I will say that that is an extremely like outlier type story. And, sure. and since then, it hasn't been like it was smooth sailing. Like I would say I paid a lot of my dues. On the back end. Right, right. <laughs> Not on the front end. Which which sometimes happens. Which sometimes happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious, you you mentioned this bad first novel. Can you remember in, in your estimation why it was bad and what you had to kind of learn um, you know, before you wrote Gated? It was bad because it wasn't me. I think when you're a new writer, you don't know who you are as a writer, so you copy other people. And so um, at that time, this would have been 2011, somewhere in there, Hunger Games, Twilight, all of that was a big deal. But Twilight particularly mm-hmm. was like still a big thing. The movies were coming out, um, you know, rapid fire at that time. And I was thinking, well, this is what people like to read. So let me try to write something similar. Um, and so I wrote something that was sort of in a, in a romance vein with this separate fantasy world and a guy who was kind of aloof and dangerous and this girl who's, you know, of course, drawn to him for those reasons. That sort of tropey thing. But none of that was me. None of that is stuff that I would normally be drawn to in life. I'm I'm a huge horror movie fan. I I read thrillers and horror 
as a reader. So I don't know where I thought that that romance and fantasy fit into that necessarily. Right. So, but I think I was thinking in terms of like what I saw that I thought other people thought was popular. Um, and so it just wasn't me. And I think when it's not you, the, the passion that you put into the project is not there in the same way. And, and it's not something that you naturally um, can write well. It's harder to do. So once I realized like, what am I writing? This is not really me. The only parts of that book that really sang were when I had something creepy happen. So <laughs> I started to think, okay, th- th- that's the stuff I'm really drawn to. Why am I writing this other stuff? And and then that was about the time that the Mayan apocalypse was a thing. This was like 2011 yeah. in that range, 2012. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to happen in 2012. And I was just fascinated by these stories on TV about people building uh, doomsday bunkers and people worried that the world was going to end and that, that this keeps coming up every, you know, few years to decades that people think the world will end. And then they have this, this panic. So, um, and at that time, that one was such a big deal that NASA had actually stuck something on their website saying, look, people, there's nothing saying that the world's going to end. There's nothing compelling here. There's no proof to this, but they had to put something up to sort of dispel it for people because they were really concerned. So, um, I really wanted to explore that. And that I knew was the right thing because it was something I was endlessly fascinated with. <laughs> I couldn't stop looking at those stories. And that's when I thought, well, this is more like something I should write. This this is right in my wheelhouse. It's it's creepy. It's psychological. It deals with moral and ethical issues. This is me. And yeah. the moment I leaned into that is when I was successful. That's great. What was your writing process as, as you were writing flight? 171. I'm curious, did you outline the novel before you began writing or did you did you just kind of dive into the narrative? How did that work for you? I, I wish I could dive into the narrative. Let me put it that way. Um, I am a compulsive outliner. So yes, I always outline from the very beginning. This has been my process, but now I would say I'm, I'm getting almost worse about that. As I get older, it gets more and more intense with every book. Uh, but I have bulletin boards with all of my scene de- index cards and photos and, you know, setting maps and all kinds of stuff. So um, it, it's compulsive to a weird degree, probably. Uh, but I, I write 30 to 60 page outlines. And um, those are probably my rough draft. And the reason I do that is because I have this perfectionistic streak. So blank <laughs> pages for me don't work. I sit there and then I procrastinate and I'll go do laundry or clean the house or anything that I can do to avoid that blank page. So if I have the outline, it tricks me into being okay. And um, basically, when I start to write a rough draft, there's something musical about writing for me. And I don't know how to explain it any other way in that when I'm typing it, I'm I'm sort of hearing the words in my head. And if they don't sound right, um, it drives me crazy. And the rough draft, they never sound right. So that entire time, I'm horribly uncomfortable because it sounds terrible to my own inner ear. Um and so that outline at least helps me stay on track. So as I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm like, let's just get down like the basic stuff and then I can make it pretty later. <laughs> I just have to try to like get myself. So I fool myself through that process. And that outline is sort of my way of doing that. And I would say as I'm writing, I I stop and I readjust that outline fairly regularly. So the moment I start to divert, because that does happen once I start writing the draft, I'll start tweaking and adjusting the outline. But it's good because when I go back to do revisions, I usually have a pretty good set of revision notes already, um, sort of as I've been going along. And I've already sort of adjusted the outline and kind of made those adjustments so that I'm not like, what did I leave in or out? What are the things that I thought I put in there but didn't? Like, I'm always kind of adjusting that and keeping sort of detailed records. It just keeps me on track. And then when you write anything that has to do with thrillers or mysteries or clues, 
it's so much easier to outline because you can build that stuff in from the beginning instead of just hoping it comes to you. It, it never comes to me. My brain apparently is just not that complex up front. <laughs> so I have really have to sit and think about that part first and then write it. Well, I'm curious, are you working on another novel now? I am. I am working on another novel now. Um, and uh, let's see, I can't say much about it, That's but fine. let me That's just say fine. that, you know, there'll be an announcement forthcoming. <laughs> oh, okay. That's wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm curious, given your experience with um, the novels that you've had published in your writing career, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Um, I think the most important thing to understand if you're going to choose to write professionally is that um, this particular career requires an intense amount of dedication uh, to your craft and to not giving up. Uh, and I say that because uh, we talked earlier about the fact that, you know, my my initial publication process was extremely quick and easy and not the norm. But I published three books up front. And after those three, my books were not selling really well. I had went to auction with the first book, gotten a, a, a very impressive advance and all, all the bells and whistles that you think will make you a success mm -hmm. um, down to like the floor displays at Barnes and Noble, all that stuff. And none of that made my book sell well. In fact, they didn't sell well at all. They sold mediocre and it got worse as I got to that third book. And so by the third book, I was kind of done. I was not a good bet for a publisher from a fiscal uh, point of view. And I literally spent between those three books and flight six years getting back into where I had a published book. So it was a long haul. And, and during that time, you know, you get concerned because you're not sure that it'll ever happen again. And I was really like leaning into education in that time period. But what I learned the most by having all of it happen and then losing all of it is that the thing that you have to love more than anything as a writer is the daily process of sitting down to write. If you don't love that part, it's not worth it because that's the part that you're doing 99% of the time. All the other stuff, the publication, anything good that happens from that, movie deals or, um, you know, audiobooks or people showing up for your book signing, that's all icing on a cake um, that you only see like at the very end of that long process of writing. So you really have to embrace the idea that that daily sit down in your office where you're alone and no one's there with you and you are just making up stories has to be the thing you love for you to keep sticking through all the hard bits where you can't control whether or not someone picks up that book and wants to buy it or picks up that book and um, wants to publish it. So that's my biggest advice is, is learning how to be patient uh, and and trust the process, but also enjoy the fact that writing really at the heart of it is you sitting in a room telling yourself the story first and then hoping someday that people will will want to read it. Well, I'm, I'm curious because I... Um, I mean, obviously, I've done this podcast over 700 episodes, but even before this, um, some people may not know um, that I worked in book publishing for about three and a half years in the 1990s. I worked for a literary agency in New York City. And what you described is not that uncommon. Um, no. And I would say that probably the more common experience is that writers, unlike what you have done, just kind of give up. I mean, they have that that big, you know, three book initial deal, and then when the books don't sell well, um, they they can't 
and you know, I don't know if it's emotionally, I don't know if it's mentally, um, they can't kind of, um, resign themselves to do whatever it takes to, to, to get that, you know, fourth book, um, written or sold. And I'm curious, what were you able to do? What were you able to do? I mean, you just mentioned that it took you six years after selling those first three books to sell, you know, your fourth one. What kept you going? Uh, I'm stubborn. (laughs) I think part of it is stubbornness, but part of it is that I have that much passion. Uh, I think there's a director in my, I forget which director said it, but he was saying, if you could do anything other than direct, go do it. Uh, because this is a really hard profession. So if anything else will make you happy, go do that. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I just understood that writing was the thing that was going to make me happy deep down. It's, it's what I feel like I'm meant to do. And I couldn't short change myself by quitting. Um, and I was I knew that, okay, I can't control the outcome. So even if it just means I'm sitting in this room writing these stories and you know only my friends or my family are reading them, I have to be okay with that. It's not what I want. I want larger publication. I want them to hit a wider audience. But um, I learned to accept that first. And then I also figured, you know, this is a craft. It's something that, you know, it's hard to learn. And and I knew that I had to really educate myself. And Steve Martin, the comedian, talks about being so good they can't ignore you. Right. I knew that was my goal, too. So it helped me stick in there knowing that, like, I had a lot to learn yet. So I still had potential to get published again because I hadn't learned everything I needed to learn. It's not like I knew everything about the craft, had tried everything, had exhausted everything, and I still wasn't getting published. I knew there were avenues I had not exhausted. I was a very new writer when I got published. I I knew from reading a lot of biographies about writers that 15 to 20 years is the norm before people are fairly well known. That's the norm. <laughs> and then there's a lot of writers who never get to that place. So um, this, is, this is sort of a long haul, long patience journey. And so I really was conscious about building up sort of my patience level, um, my pragmatism and knowing that this was not something that was going to come real easy. It's not a fast, get there quick, get famous kind of thing. It's, you know, I had to figure out why was I doing this? And I was doing this because I love stories. That's primarily why I'm doing it. So if that's why I'm doing it, then the other stuff will come when it comes. I have to trust that it will, but I'm going to shortchange myself if I don't allow myself to explore storytelling every day a little bit because that fundamentally is what I like. That's the thing that I'm trying to do first. Sure. And I'm just curious, um, in that intervening six years, were you ever tempted to kind of do indie publishing or self-publishing of any of the things that you were working on during that time? I had thought about indie publishing, um, but I wanted to give traditional publishing like another big shot. Now, I say that in Indie publishing is on my table still. Like it's something mm-hmm. I think about, especially yep. the idea of being a hybrid author and sort of doing that thing. I did know early on um, I wasn't well suited to self-publishing and that I'm not a quick writer. Right. So I needed to get better at what I was doing. That was my primary focus for those six years. I knew that that above anything else was what I needed to do. Whether I went traditional or self-published, I needed to really nail down craft. And then from that point, it would be much easier for me to figure out which avenues I needed to take. But um, I think it was important for me personally to prove I could get back there um, into the traditional space. But now that I'm here, I'm, I'm extremely open to both because I think both are really valid ways to make a living as an author. And I think, you know, self-publishing, honestly, to do just traditional publishing, I'm not sure how realistic that is long-term. I think you have to be open to every avenue, especially with how the world is changing and how, you know, readers are changing. 
Sure. It's just smart business to do that. But um, for now, you know, I've got a, a toe hold. I'm trying to make that toe hold be like a ledge that I can stand on. <laughs> and then once I get a little bit of an audience, I think uh, I will. I will probably dip my toe into the self-publishing world as well. <laughs> That's great. Well, what books have you read recently that you enjoyed, either novels or nonfiction? Okay, let's see. Um, hmm. Well, you know, honestly, I'm a huge Paul Tremblay fan. <laughs> so I'm super excited about uh, M. Night Shyamalan has making his cabin in the, it's like, a, I think it's Cabin in the Woods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Cabin at the End of the World. That's it, Cabin at the End of the World. Um, he, the, that, that's about to become like a movie, and I'm so excited about that. But I loved Survivor Song, which was one of his more recent ones. And, and I have um, his next one, it's the Paul Bears Club sitting on my desk. I have, uh, I'm on deadline for the novel I'm currently working on. And as soon as I'm done, that's the book I'm picking up. <laughs> but I'm a huge fan of his, I would say. Um, but let's see. Nonfiction, I read The Fourth Turning, which is an old book from like mm -hmm. the 1990s. But really, it just talks about historical cycles. Sure. Sort of where we are in historical cycles. I think um, politics and sort of where the news has been for a long time. Right. Where we are sort of with the pandemic and everything else. It's such a weird time. So I was looking for sort of historically, what have we been through before? What does this look like? And that book was actually sure. talking about how everything that we've gone through is just part of a cycle right. and where that cycle comes in and during your lifetime just depends on when you were born. But all of that affects how um, you grow up, how you see things. So it's kind of an interesting book because uh, it, it really talks about sort of the psychology of where you are. Like if you were born as a boomer, you came into a very different world. It was much more optimistic. Things yep. were good. It was after World War II. Uh, and then, you know, I'm Gen X and Gen X was, um, we were kind of left on our own. We had more pessimistic view of things. It was a little different. And it sort of talks about where, you know, where the world is right now and how this millennial generation will very much parallel the World War II generation in terms of having to sort of stand up and fundamentally change things for things to get better. So it's kind of an interesting read. That's interesting. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Uh, they can find me on my website, amychristineparker.com. Um, I'm mostly on Instagram if we're talking about social media. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be amychristineparr, just the P-A-R, because that's all that fits for my Instagram handle. <laughs> um, so I would be there as well. Uh, I'm once a while on TikTok, but I would say I'm that's one of those places where I'm dabbling. And um, I think my teenagers probably love that that's all I'm doing right now because it's way embarrassing to have your mom on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Amy Christine Parker, author of the new novel Flight 171. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Amy, thanks for doing this interview. Yes, thanks for having me on. I, I enjoyed myself. Okay, wonderful. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.